Hi there, uh, my name is Pooja Gupta. I'm a senior associate at CM Murray, joined today by Dr Nancy Doyle, who is a chartered psychologist in organisational and occupational psychology and the founder and owner of Genius Within CIC, which is a social enterprise dedicated to facilitating neurodiversity inclusion through consultancy, talent assessment, workshops and coaching for businesses. And I'm also joined by Laurie Dean, who is a partner at Hughes, Sokol, Piers, Riesnick and Dime Limited based in Chicago, Illinois. And Laurie represents executives and individuals in a wide variety of employment law matters. So Laurie and Nancy have kindly agreed to, enjoy, to join me today to reflect on um, our, IFSI, our third IFSI conference, which um, was held on the 14th of June this year, um, at which we had uh, international experts uh, brought together to discuss various different topics um, that, that were, you know, at the various different topics that are relevant to um, senior executives and senior executive advisors. Um, and our topic that we were focusing on was um, what benefits can neurodiverse individuals bring to corporate boards and why should leaders speak out about neurodiversity? So we had a very, very interesting chat on the day. And I think in this video, we just wanted to kind of touch upon the key things that we discussed and build out some of the key, the key topics. So to kick us off, it would be great, Nancy, if you could just start by giving us an overview as to what neurodiversity is and what it means to you. So neurodiversity in its broadest form means the diversity in the human species around our neurocognitive profiles. So um, neurolo neurology, cognitive ability, these things vary. There are different elements of them. There are, there are things like visual spatial reasoning, verbal skills, um, how quickly you process things, how well your memory and attention work. And um, these things are not always equal. And the human species tends to produce both specialists and generalists. So we have some people who are good at everything, some people who are kind of average and competent at everything. And um, we have some people that have sort of big spikes where they're good at some things and not so good at, each, at the other things. And traditionally, those people have been categorized according to the things that they are not good at. So we talk about dyslexia, difficulty with words. We talk about attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, you know, which is a, a difficulty with memory and attention. And we talk about autism and and dyspraxia and so we've very much focused on what people can't do um, but the neurodiversity critique is really well actually all of those conditions don't affect every part of your thinking and there's plenty that's left that people really can do um, and so we're kind of we've taken a glass half empty view of neurological differences to date and the neurodiversity movement is trying to say well actually it's a balanced picture and as the, although there are difficult Difficulties, uh, and these are very often um, considered disability in accordance with UK and US law. There are those disabling characteristics of these neurotypes, but actually there are also strengths. So we're trying to create a more balanced view. So neurodiversity is all of us. Um, the specialist thinkers are neurodivergent or neurominorities. Um, and then there are neurotypicals who are the generalists who are kind of, you know, the same or um, competent at most things. And I, I guess it's, it's all really about kind of working out what the strengths 
of your strengths and weaknesses are of neuro minorities and neurodiverse individuals and working out how we collectively work together to, to mm -hmm. be in the most successful team, I suppose, is the kind of overall objective, really, in a workplace context anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know if you had anything to add to that, Laurie, but um, I, I know that that was a very comprehensive summary of, of what neurodiversity is. I wouldn't dare to add. I think she covered it quickly. <laughs> went to the expert first. Um, so um, then just moving on, um, obviously a, a large part of the, our discussion in June was based on um, you know the benefits of and, and I think we all we're all quite clear on, on what some of the benefits are but if we could just drill down on that very briefly about you know when you're when you're looking at for businesses what and obviously businesses quite often focus on commercial drivers to to put anything on at the top of the agenda what do you think Laurie you know in your partnership in your firm what do you think businesses should be thinking about when when putting neurodiversity at the top of the agenda or near to the top anyway I think it's it's a lot of what Nancy was talking about in terms of a focus on the benefits, not just the disabling parts of the conditions. But I think, um, first of all, there's no one right way to solve problems. And so I think this is a missed opportunity if we are not cultivating and, and bringing into the fold and acknowledging and including, but also um, celebrating the neurodivergent individuals who bring something different to the table in terms of problem solving. So I think as leaders, expanding our definition of what are the leadership qualities that we value is really important and, and something that um, we should um, focus on as another component of our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Um, I feel like this is just another layer, but it's also where the institutional credibility hits the road in terms of are you truly living your diversity, equity, and inclusion values if you're not considering your neurodivergent thinkers. Yeah, absolutely. And are you seeing that, you know, on the ground in, in your firm in Chicago and the U.S. more generally? Are you seeing neurodiversity being kind of put where it needs to be? Slowly, very slowly. Um, in my own firm, um, to be honest, I was one of the first individuals to bring it up as an aspect of diversity, equity, and inclusion when we began our journey and talking about, okay, let's not forget um, that we have this whole um, layer or, or, or whole facet of diversity, equity, inclusion that we need to be considering. Um, but I will say that once we started the conversations, a number of the leaders in our firm self-identified um, as individuals who are, are neurodivergent and um, or not neurotypical, <laughs> sort of the way that they chose to identify themselves. But it was, um, so it began a conversation that is taking hold. And I think there is, um, there is a new way to celebrate um, the individuality and the specialization that Nancy was talking about um, and valuing specialized thinkers um, in a new way that we hadn't thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think part of our topic specifically was to kind of focus on what more leaders can do themselves to speak out about neurodiversity. I know you just mentioned, Laurie, about, you know, certain individuals, I guess, self-identifying and, and being encouraged to self-identify. Mm -hmm. What do you think... Um, are some of the perhaps the barriers uh, to you know to achieving neurodiverse leadership, or in fact, you know, people to actually speak out, self-identify as being neurodiverse in those kind of senior most positions, um, and how how might we can go about removing any stigma that is associated with neurodiversity? Do either of you have any uh, thoughts, particular thoughts on that? It's a it's a difficult one because it it is a you know there's there's a broad spectrum of all of these things. I mean I I'm I have ADHD and 
um, you know, sometimes I am very disabled. There are, there are situations I, I can't, um, I can't, I, there are times when I just can't do things. And so those disabilities do exist. And, and, and but, you know, then we get into bigger questions around, you know, well, why should that be stigmatizing anyway? So I, I think within the neurodiversity that debate, we also need to have a wider debate, which is why is disability stigma? You know, mm -hmm. there are 2 billion disabled people worldwide of, who, of which neuro-minorities form a, a kind of subset and an overlapping subset because some neuro-minority people will be categorised as disabled and some won't. Um, but, you know, where is this stigma coming from anyway, <laughs> I think is a sort of bigger question. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I know that we, in one of our planning calls, we actually talked about, you know, neurodiversity falling within that the wider disability bracket. And I think... Mm. I can't remember who, but I think maybe you fell on the side of the, the argument, Nancy, that neurodiversity shouldn't be distinguished from, you know, those who are disabled in, you know, those who have physical disabilities, etc. Is there anything in the kind of labelling or, you know, distinctions that should be made that, that you think could be made clearer that might support those who, who are neurodiverse? In terms of, I guess I'm thinking also more about the protections that are available. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, th th this is it. You know, one of the one of the questions about why is it important for organisations to implement working practices that embrace neurodiversity is, you know, part of me just wants to say because it's the law, mm -hmm. because you're legally obliged to. It's as simple as that. You know, we most most developed economies operate under the United Nations Conventions of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which means that organisations have to make reasonable accommodations and adjustments to ensure mm -hmm. that disabled people can access the work environment and succeed and work at their best. And so I, I feel like we're, we're creating carrots um, to kind of um, offset that stick. Um, but is the, is the full answer for this underlying it all just because it's the right thing to do to have an organization in which all types of people can belong and contribute and whatever organization you work in does that organization not also serve a population of customers or service users that will also have disabilities and neurodiversity so if you don't have mm -hmm. those um, conditions included in your staff team how are you ensuring that what you deliver is appropriate for the full range of human um, experience you know if our organizations are um, excessively um, over male we know that that doesn't necessarily work we know what happens when we have organizations that exclude race and ethnic um, my, people that are minoritized potentially by race and ethnicity in that particular country is it you know it creates us and themness it creates services and 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 um, and products that don't suit the needs of the people that are receiving them and don't include those needs. So it, it's that that kind of major argument. Why should we do inclusion? Um, is because it just makes sense. It's the right thing to do, and also it's the law. I think sometimes businesses think about the law afterwards when things have gone wrong, and then they're trying yeah. to backpedal mm -hmm. and get themselves yeah. out of it rather than thinking proactively. Well, what can we do actually to comply with the law and actually? you know not only comply with our legal obligations but also be just be a better business and be more attractive to our customers clients um and you know set ourselves apart as it were i think i think we've talked about the inherent conundrum for senior executives in particular to utilize the legal mechanism and the legal framework that exists for example in the u.s 
we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is far from perfect. It is a very rudimentary infrastructure for protecting the rights of disabled individuals in the workplace, but it does first and foremost require you to self-identify as disabled. And there is an inherent conflict in my view between individuals who view themselves as specialized thinkers and neurodivergency as a positive versus self-identifying as, oh, I'm disabled, I can't. And I think senior executives in particular are worried about the stigma that comes with self-identifying as disabled. And I, and I think that is perfectly valid. And so I think that's part of why the senior executives and the board members need to be changing the conversation around this so that there is far less stigma, but it's also we're embracing the differences among us. And we, yes, the, the legal framework is the bare minimum foundation of what we're willing to do to help you in this workplace. But we can do a lot more and we can make you feel valued and included and help you help retain and help you thrive. And so I think that's what we have to do is elevate the conversation between the basically above the basic legal framework. Absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I think in terms of it, what, I, what I think would be helpful and was helpful um, in our session was the kind of more practical takeaways um, and, and also thinking in terms of practical takeaways, making sure that neurodiverse talent isn't just kind of brought through the door and recruited, but also making sure that they are retained, promoted, make their way through to the kind of senior positions. Is there a way, do you think, in both of your views of kind of making sure that processes like recruitment, promotion, retention can actually really think about uh, kind of embracing neurodiversity and empowering neurodiverse people to get to the top? Well, I would say it starts with training. I mean, I'm, I, know, I know that's close to Nancy's heart because that's the work she does every day, but I, I firmly believe that training is the key um, and not just at um, the management level, but you have to train HR and, and employee relations professionals, human capital professionals to take this very seriously, but also understand because, for example, I mean, quite a few people, myself included, are neurotypical and this is all new ground for us and I think learning what is the proper terminology, but also um, how to uh, adapt your hiring practices, for example, to be wider, uh, wider, more widely available, just like you would put a, um, you put uh, certain features on your website to help the hearing impaired, well, why wouldn't you change your hiring process and your interview process to adapt to what is most conducive to um, neurodivergent individuals? So I think it, it really means training. You have to think outside yourself and think about these processes that can be impediments to success. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think we also need more visibility of leaders who are disabled and neurodivergent because um, actually they are out there. You know, it's it's a myth. People, lots of companies start <laughs> with me by saying, "Oh, we, you know, we don't. We, we'd like to hire some people who are neurodivergent." And I say, "Well, what about the ones you already got? You already have. How are you supporting them? Because if you're not supporting them already, you don't want to hire a bunch of new people in to just then, you know, create more need." Um, I think in terms of um, promotion, retention, um, we also need to look at career paths that don't depend on um, lower level management. I think that there's something that is so and I, this goes wider for me than neurodiversity. So we, we seem to have career structures in which, um, 
in order to be promoted, you have to go through years of being a team manager or, a, you know, a junior manager, which is mm. entirely based on meeting deadlines and compliance with the rules. And then you get into senior management, which is entirely based on breaking the rules and having ideas <laughs> and being strategic. Um, but we've trained you for senior management by spending 10 years in compliance. It just doesn't make sense as a process. The kind of people that will be good at that one won't necessarily be good at that one. And a lot of the neurodivergent thinkers um, are particularly good at the creativity, out the box, uh, breaking the rules, thinking about how to do unusual things, but completely struggle with the compliance deadlines, making other people work. You know, all of that stuff is not their bag, but their other stuff is. So, you know, we, 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 there, there needs to be routes into senior management that don't involve going through the lower levels of compliance based management. I think there needs to be professional rules where professional routes, sorry, where a specialist can have a, a seat at the, at the strategy table without having to have demonstrated their capacity to line manage 10 people's performance. Um, that's, I think, one of the biggest things companies can change to get more neurodivergent talent into the senior levels. On a practical level, does that involve, you know, rewriting job specs and making sure that specific roles are specifically kind of tailored to individual characteristics and, and people's strengths? Or, you know, what does that look like in terms of if a business actually wanted to act upon that and, and make that happen? Yes, it means exactly that. I think people, you know, we need to really look at job design. You know, how are we designing jobs? Are we designing jobs for jacks of all trades and masters of none? And, you know, things sneak in there. They sneak into job descriptions that don't need to be in there. They sneak into performance reviews and, you know, that kind of quantifying how good you are and whether or not you get a promotion means you need to get fives on this 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 and this and if you haven't got fives you can't get a promotion even though you might have tens on all those other things you know mm -hmm. that that whole system where we want everybody to be a jack of all trades is exactly what is keeping specialist thinkers out of out of senior levels so for example if you were um a data I, I've, you, you look at jobs for data analysts and they you know they'll say things like it must have team influencing skills why? why? Why does a data analyst need to influence a team? A mm -hmm. data analyst needs to analyze data and be really, really good at it and not make any mistakes and do it quickly. That's not the same part of the brain that, that does motivational team discussions. Um, so, so why does the data analyst need those things? You know, and so when you sort of take some of that social convention stuff out of the job descriptions, you can start applying more specifically um the people who are going to be good at the actual job with the actual performance um, and then those people get a chance to thrive and they don't get stuck there because they're not particularly good at presenting in meetings yeah and, and i guess those people if they're if they're stuck doing something that actually they they can't do or they're not very good at doing then they might end up leaving that organization earlier than they could possibly do if there was just a little bit more thought applied to to what they are good at and what their strengths are and what they can bring yeah. to business. Mm -hmm. So I guess the turnover of staff would otherwise be, you know, people would constantly be leaving, which I suppose they do in, in certain they do. environments. <laughs> yeah, they do. That's exactly what happens. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They will start their own companies, generally speaking. I mean, quite a few neurodivergent individuals are very successful entrepreneurs for that, that very reason. Exactly. Um, <laughs> a, a, study, a study by Julie Logan at the Cass Business School in 2009 um, found that 35% of US entrepreneurs were dyslexic, but only 1% of US corporate managers. I think, I think the numbers speak for themselves on all of that. It really does. Yeah.
I guess the only other thing I would add in terms of practical tips is um, having an intentional allyship program or or, um, education for the full employee population about neurodivergency and, and the idea that you either know or you are someone who is neurodivergent, given the the, the population um, mm-hmm. concentration and and the sheer statistics of this. I mean, the thing is, I, I also see this as a generational issue um, where we have to do better at this because the, the generations that are coming up are already expecting it. They've had it in the education system for a very long time, and the workplace should be also a safe place for, in, not just a safe place, but a place where neurodivergent individuals can thrive. Um, and I think that the youngest, the younger generations coming up, they've had this um, ability to have targeted education programs in their schools and have been identified for their qualities, not just their disabling conditions. And so we need to do that in the workplace or they're never going to want to stay to work with us. Um, mm-hmm. so. Absolutely. Words of, words of wisdom there for your uh, mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't intend it to be a mic drop, but it just, honestly, I, I think the fact that Gen X and, and Gen Z, they are so immersed in this from very early on in the education system. And when they come to the workplace, they see absolutely none of the same values and concepts and, and cultural values um, uh, engendered there that they had in their schools and so when they don't find it they go elsewhere looking for it yeah and uh, I, I guess that's becoming all the more important to try and really look at your talent look inwards and try and retain and and promote those those bright people all the way to the top and make sure they're there for a long time uh, so thank you so much Laurie and Nancy I, I really appreciate your time um, and we hope you've enjoyed this video um, and we hope you, you join the conversation if you'd like to please join the IFSI LinkedIn group and follow us um, at IFSI Network so thank you very much and thank you to Laurie and Nancy thank you thank you